Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. We brought back the first season because of high demand and because not everybody want to see it on video. So I hope you enjoyed. The first episode is back with Daniel Coward. Daniel, do you want to give, I think we have a good, good size attendance. Do you want to give a little bit background about yourself? Yeah, sure. And then we'll rock um, on. Uh, my name's Dan. Uh, I'm the owner of Xservice Limited. Uh, I've been in the technology industry for longer than I can remember. I'd have to get an uh, Excel spreadsheet out to, to work out exactly when. But I think it was uh, responding to a malware outbreak uh, for a small business when I was about 13 years old was probably when I started. Yeah, but back then it was a bit different. Uh, floppy drives, boot sector viruses, and... Uh, not so much damage. Uh, I then went and uh, started my career after leaving school. And I started in a contact center support role. Uh, I then moved into uh, desktop support. I was a modern apprentice uh, for several years. Uh, I went on and did some uh, MCPs and then uh, moved into a design role uh, and then solution architecture uh, for a 25,000 seat company doing their client architecture uh, where I did a lot of firewall config, uh, endpoint patching, security, user experience, configuration management, asset management, all the world that involves anyone that touches a uh, an endpoint uh, on the network. Uh, after that, I... Uh, did a big transformation and then decided to go and try something new. So uh, I then went consulting. Uh, I worked in a channel consulting provider and have worked with a large range of companies like HP, VMware, IBM, Fujitsu, Dell, uh, and pretty much every big name, um, La and VAR. Uh, in the channel. Uh, following that, I did some uh, more consulting with Extrovert, um, and I then set up an advisory services practice. I did that for a few years, uh, and then as time goes on, you decide to try and take on the world on your own. So uh, <laughs> I set up my own business, and I'm just heading up for year four. So I've got a range of experience. Uh, I've done virtual CIO roles. I've run teams of 25 people. I've deployed projects across the globe. I've done uh, a few things from a defensive and an offensive point of view. 
uh, and gone through all kinds of different IT projects and, and scenarios, hopefully helping people leverage technology uh, to their business and personal benefit in a nice, secure manner. So, yeah. That's you in a nutshell. That, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Lots of things to many people. Everyone always asks what I do, and then I sit there going, will they understand what I say? Do I even know what I do? Um, so that's always a fun and interesting conversation. So, uh, so how did you get in, into the more offensive dash defensive role? So what attracted you, uh, I suppose, at the, when, when you were 13 to jump on that and, and do that uh, incident response or incident analysis and then further on, uh, what made you focus a little bit more on the on the offenses? I mean, I, I know you from Twitter, and, and we know each other a little bit on on the interaction. So I know you and the bot word and and the whole Chiban of uh, try to hack my box. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you can talk. So <laughs> you can talk about those initially and what what attracted you from doing those. I guess I'll go back to like the like the beginning of my childhood. Um, so when I was I must have been eight years old. Something like that. A, a, a few years ago, um, my parents bought a new PC for for me and my sister and brother, um, and it was like a four eight six sixty six megahertz um, box. And we I networked them, so I was like I had a bit of a ten base T coax cable, and everything was great except they got my cousin to hide Doom <laughs> because Doom then was an eighteen, and I was let's say eight. And uh, I was not allowed to play Doom. So I decided that wasn't acceptable and that there was no way that their configuration would beat me. So I hacked myself into being able to play Doom, uh, much to my parents' horror, when they actually realized that the, I reconfigured the sound card because they was on the, the inbuilt speaker. Mm-hmm. And I, if anyone remembers back in those days, uh, the sound quality of that was pretty poor. Uh, turning the sound blaster on, on Doom when you're a kid is quite scary. <laughs> I, I kid you not, I literally jumped when I, I think an imp jumped out of a, a dark shadow and attacked me, you know, scary stuff. Scary stuff. So that was kind of my intro into like sort of tinkering. Uh, as I went through, uh, you know, in school, we clearly tried to get access to things that um, you weren't supposed to. We weren't supposed to. I was. I was a prefect. I, I defended the network as well as a uh, play with things, right? And so you know where to break better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I moved from a like from a career point of view. I, I went in support. Uh, I went in support on the phone. I did support uh, first and second line. Um, I was designing systems to help people. I went from wanting to be a kid game designer and tinkering of stuff and level design when I was a kid. Uh, realizing I'm not very good at that, but um, hmm. working out I can deconstruct and design systems quite well. So moving forward, you know, my first experience of a malware outbreak was in a, a shop with three PCs, and that was like high tech back in the day. Um, hmm. You know, security has always been part of of design. It's not something to me. I you know, when we talk about cybersecurity or infosec, or to me, it's all the same stuff. It's technology enablement. No, I absolutely agree. So, right. how I got into the more offensive side is uh, I was designing defensively. And I think I realized that there was only a limit to how much I'd be able to defend against with having someone else understand the offensive side. So, 
I was doing stuff for um, some organizations I can't mention, but we would have pen testers come in and they would review our designs and then they review the actual builds and configs and then they'd come back to us with a million different config changes. Um, and I was like, right, okay, so uh, I now need to understand more about why I'm going to say yes or no to these and I need to understand the the impact. Uh, and I think that's really when I sort of started going, right, okay, I need to understand what what, what I need to configure, what's important to harden and what's not. Because we broke Windows at one point to the point that fixing it, uh, the GPO change that was put in uh, literally broke Windows. So even replacing the DLLs uh, on a box wouldn't re-enable the CD writing function. So I kind of realized it was important to know exactly who would attack, how they would attack, uh, and how I would defend against it, and how I would defend against it in a sensible manner. Like I said, I used to look after 25,000 clients. Um, so it, patching those and then securing that kind of global scale was, uh, was a challenge. So I think that's sort of where my, my interest sparked. And then mm. as I was I mean, doing... How, you know, did you move, how did you move into more, into more uh, at scale, if you want? Yeah, so then it must be about five years ago. Uh, I started doing more offensive stuff from a work point of view. So we were working with businesses and internally where security uh, priorities were becoming much stronger. Uh, for a service provider, you have to obviously maintain a level of security. So I started doing a lot of internal audits and reviews and breaking into the companies that I worked for, which was always a nice, pleasant experience when you go and tell your boss that. Uh, you by know, the way. <laughs> yeah, by the way. I can't, uh, I can't <laughs> You know that salary that, uh, raise you said you wouldn't give me? Yeah, just happens you have. Just happened, um, magic. magic. Suddenly the, the finance magic. system has decided to run me Yeah. Yeah. Um, so really, that was kind of the, the also part of the spark in terms of getting more offensive. Um, what really, really hit my interest was I was at Cyber UK uh, a, in 2017. Yeah, 2017, a year ago. Um, and I uh, entered the CTF. Okay. And if anyone knows me at conferences, then you know that you know I like to get social. Um, Anyway, so I entered the CTF and I managed to do okay. I think I came joint third uh, on a team of one versus mainly teams of many. Um, and I've been playing Hack the Box uh, previously. So I, I joined Hack the Box, I think, relatively soon after it started. Uh, when did it start, actually? Because I was discussing this with Magda, but I couldn't pinpoint when it actually started. Do you know what? I, I, I don't remember. I spent too many uh, too many Saturday nights uh, staying up all night <laughs> pwning boxes. Um, but that that was really you know that that was uh, the CTF stuff really really uh, like piqued my interest. Um, mainly because you can then attack lots of scenarios that you won't necessarily see in real life, mm -hmm. or that they'll be similar to. Um, it's something that I work with. I'm on the Many Hats Club CTF team, and I'm one of the uh, the, the grayer-haired people on the team. And um, I think I'm the only one with gray hair. Um, yeah, they're, they're quite young. So, so just, just, just for information for everybody, um, if you want to give a little bit of background of uh, Hack the Box, because not everybody might know. Yeah, sure. So Hack the Box is a uh, capture the flag uh, platform. 
and it contains a bunch of challenges like offline challenges and virtual labs and what we call boxes which is a, essentially a vm where the objective is to uh break into the systems and capture the flags and that's done via two stages in hack the box you've got user mode flags uh, where you gain an initial foothold so you may attack a web service the web service may not be running as system or admin uh, you might be running as user you then get the user flag and then you have to do privilege escalation and own the root stroke uh, system element of a box to get the the, the root flags different the boxes flag have and the flag, correct me if I'm wrong, are just objectives. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're literally text files uh, in this yeah. example. Um, and different flags have different points. Uh, user flags have less points than root flags. And different boxes are different strengths. Uh, then you combine that into the fact there's a, a team system. And then you've got teams competing around the world to, to try and beat each other, get faster flags, get more points. Uh, and learn more. So it's quite fun. And um, it's for free, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a free one. You have to hack yourself in. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, it's not very hard to get into Hack the Box. You can no, do it with a, web, with a web browser. <laughs> try to break the, try to break the invite, invite me and try to see what part of the page code, just as a hint. <laughs> You can't give it away to everyone, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, then, but it's, it's actually a very intelligent thing. It's like, if you really want to do it, just be serious about it. And considering it's free, everybody will actually put some value only if they actually need to put some effort in it. Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's, I mean, I, I pay for a VIP subscription on Hack the Box because uh, if anyone knows the free experience versus the VIP experience, if, if you're on it enough, you will not want to sit in the free world. Though the free world is good if you want to see. Starting what, point. Yeah, it's great for starting point, but it's also good because you can steal each other's shells and oh, tools. Okay. So you can go and see <laughs> different ways of doing things um, because you've got a lot of people acting uh, offensively on a box. So there oh, are some there's some fun you can have in in free, um, which is quite cool. The so yeah, hack the box has been re really important. I guess it's, it's great from a training point of view as well. One of the things that um, I think some people don't realise is that from an offensive security point of view, the landscape that you have to deal with is really really wide. Is everything. Um, yeah, it's, people, it's, it's everything. Process, whatever you can leverage, right? Yeah, and you're going to be hitting a range of technology that's so varied. Um, so if you're in the, in the banking space, who knows COBOL? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, hello, it's even, <laughs> If you think about, like, when you look at the makeup of most companies um, from a back-end point of view, they're usually a Windows network, Active Directory. They've got Windows endpoints. Um, and they've got like standard services at the back end. When you get into the web world, you've got like a, a whole range more. So it's it's pretty much every combination of config and software you could think of in the world, and some you can't think of. Uh, so I think the the labs are really good. Uh, I actually started building uh, an educational You're platform. Yeah. yeah. So I built my Pwn Defend challenges, which I'm uh, still releasing and. The idea behind that is it's very similar to the idea of Hack the Box, except I'm not doing VMs uh, at the minute, so you can't get shells. It's just about web and data theft. I'm oh, also trying to c combine 
other areas, uh, which some boxes include in Hack the Box, but I'm trying to make people use OSINT skills. Uh, so for those that that's open source intelligence gathering. Yeah, that's, that's actually the second question I want to ask if you participate to any capture the flag like uh, DC or uh, DEFCON or any other any other capture the flag. So, on, on a... so the stuff I've done, uh, I've only played in Cyber UK's uh, CTFs. Uh, okay. One of the things, and this this is why some of the guys on my team, um, we have quite a laugh because they're like, Dan, you've got to go to work and I've got to go to school and actually I'm on holiday. <laughs> so I'm going to sit there and pwn all day and Dan's going to sit there and write a report. Um, getting time to do all this stuff is difficult. There's loads of different um, there's loads of different challenges you can do. There's the Hacker 101 CTFs. There's uh, Hack the Box. There's, uh, I think it's Pentest Academy. There's, there's a lot of platforms these days. I, I kind of wish I could go back in time because yeah, this stuff didn't exist very long ago. So the tools and uh, no, you have to be offensive, like really offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I sometimes describe myself as an offensive architect. Um, <laughs> Because not using swear words. Yeah, yeah. Well, I swear as well, right? So the um, <laughs> but when you put technology in a business, and we've got a huge problem, I think, uh, from a global point of view, the rate of technology adoption is massive, and we have literally littered the world and our businesses with, with half complex, half-baked, misunderstood or not understood uh, technology. And the, the technology is sexy and the CTO will want to jump on the latest tech well, as soon as it's available. You need business advantage, right? You need to be able to be fast. You need to be able to respond to your customer needs. Yeah, We do that through technology. The problem comes is that, I mean, it's a bit like uh, back, in the, back in the day, right? What's the things that people strip out when they've got a finite budget, because everyone has a finite budget, and a finite resource pool, and a finite level of skills, there's stuff that you, you know, that sometimes gets trimmed. <clears throat> and that's ended to be documentation, project management, and security. Yeah. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor, and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. Just before we jump on on the on the corporate run, uh, there was actually a very interesting question on the chat about the skills and how you develop the skills because I train myself by just breaking stuff or reading stuff over the web. And uh, but there is a whole series of uh, training. Uh, on on offensive skill like OSCP, um, uh, ethical hacker, or you know any any. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've done the PWK labs, um, and that, that there's definitely the route to go. So I mean, 
from my point of view, hands-on experience using CTF Labs, like uh, the Hack the Box, using stuff like Volnhub, um, doing courses like the PWK, that's uh, penetration testing with Carly, and that's the OSCP um, mm -hmm. labs. I think the OSCP is probably the more serious one and the more comprehensive one. I haven't done the the other one at um, Certified Ethical Hacker, but I think it's, it's closely related to, it's a bit more dumbed down version. Uh, OSCP tends to be a bit more serious, I found. Um, yeah, but, the OSCP uh, is a journey, I think, that you have to go on. Um, yeah. And I haven't... Uh, it's okay. a journey you go on of exploration. Um, well, I've done my PWK and I've going to just book my exams um, for that. The it, it takes time. Uh, yeah, the labs were but, cool. I quite liked them. They they weren't. It's that you have to remember, like, depending on where you're starting from and what experience and exposure you've got, uh, different things mean different things to different people. My personal way of learning is to do white box and build the labs and build the vulnerabilities and then attack them and exploit them and then defend them. Yeah, but you're kind of but marking you, your own homework. It's much more fun if you have a vulnerable <laughs> box and it's like you can you can buy you can get pre-built image of all the OS with some sort of stuff in there and then you can try. But it's like marking your own homework or actually cheating a little bit. So you don't have the passion and the pain of actually discovering what system is in there, what version is in there. It's like it's almost like a, a white box testing. Yeah, yeah, but don't don't knock white box testing. Um, Sorry, don't knock white box testing. No, it's, it's a starting. I think it's a starting to actually discover the techniques, uh, and it could be like a step by step. Yeah, I mean, like I said, different people learn different ways. Um, we agree. have to remember that our offensive security practices are defensive security practices for offensive actions. The ultimate goal of all offensive security is defensive security. So, how mm. people <laughs> For the commercial version of it? <laughs> yeah, say. okay, yeah. We're not talking nation states, right? Because the <laughs> you, you've got to think about the landscape. We're talking about the the general scenario. Yes, there are some people who will be authorized to use offensive cybersecurity capability for destructive reasons, right? Yeah. Um, but that's a very minority audience, uh, depending on what part of the world you're in, anyway. Um, you know, the mainstream offensive security is defensive security, and that's the way I view it. There's no point in breaking into something if you're not improving uh, rapidly the defensive controls around that system. Yeah. Oh, thank I mean, you guys I, I, I for, sharing, for sharing the, the information, the OSCP and other information. That was, we've got so another one as well. Yanis, Yanis says, you have any piece of advice if you have to deal with engineering teams that are not keen on doing infosec training? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so the way I view, uh, you know, security, especially security teams and the way we are integrating technology in businesses, um, it's, it's a communication game. Yes, there's an absolute wealth of technical uh, technical stuff to play with. There's a whole uh, raft of different skill sets, and that includes non-technical uh, capabilities. But when you need to work with people and they need you to make like some changes in behaviors, that's really a comms piece. Yeah. 
And I think you can't do everything yourself, right? It would be great if you could sit there and go around and, and do all the code and go and harden everything and say no to everyone until <laughs> until <laughs> everything was secure. That, that doesn't work. I mean, that's what I call security 90s. Um, it doesn't work. What, what we need to do is... Security person that is integrated in everything. Yeah, yeah. Omnipresent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, we all have to, we have constraints we have to deal with. So yeah. I guess um, well, this is the te some techniques that I use. So I run workshops uh, with teams uh, to talk through and give demonstrations. I try and show people how to pwn, uh, at least where it's relevant to them. So... If they've developed a logon form as a developer, then we would demonstrate how we brute forced it. We would then demonstrate how we fish someone and how we compromise the controls and then demonstrate why they should use MFA and, and uh, out the box uh, I think techniques. That's, that's, a very, that's a very powerful method to actually show this is actually why it's vulnerable and, and, and showing real life example. What I also use on, on the educational side, I think it's, how tos and best practice and principle is stuff that you can embed because sometimes you just don't go through a checklist of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it is useful to have like a reference reference base of stuff you could use or to fix your own thing. So I've, I've found a lot of engineering teams that don't, don't come up with fixes by themselves. It's like, how do you fix? How do we fix a problem? I go and I go out and buy a solution, and and I see in a lot of organizations, well, just coming up with their own engineering things, it could be a very much better solution. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something I'm quite passionate about. Is we talk a lot, uh, there's a lot of talk around shifting left, but and the focus seems to be shifting left and work with developers, and I'm absolutely not saying that's not a good approach. We do absolutely need to work with people. But what I'm, the way I'm looking at shifting left is actually more into a, a business strategy, into a program, into a financial and business management aspect. So that security gets embedded as part of the cultural DNA and is yeah. part of the uh, strategic alignment process so that you haven't got this issue whereby uh, the old scenario you used fast to be- track. You fast track and you don't dedicate enough time. You don't spend time on threat modeling. So it takes time. Just because it shifts less, it doesn't doesn't mean that you get free resource on security just because there is a new <laughs> Yeah, so absolutely. That, that's a trick. That's a buzzword. It's like shift left. Oh, we don't need security anymore. Engineer actually can do <laughs> You still need an architect. You still need people that think strategically through. Um, and can actually do threat modern and can actually do that stuff with the support of the engineering. I think it's a, it's a joint effort and it's, yeah, I, I, it's a message that I hammer a lot. But. Absolutely. I mean, security is a group and team effort. It is not a, it's not for heroes, right? Um, you, you get Not small. anymore. <laughs> the, that's the way I try and tend to approach it. And you have to, you know, like I say, you keep using the word constraints. Um, you need to work with what you've got to achieve your business business objectives within a uh, legal or regulatory uh, bound framework with the constraints you've got. Yeah. That's, you know, it's complex. These things involve humans. Humans are complex, uh, even more so than the, the robots. So 
Getting good communication. That's why you like robots more. <laughs> I, like, I like humans and robots. It's just the, the the robots are fun to deal with when you're sitting at a, at a keyboard. The humans are less so fun. Uh, but you know, there's nothing beats. Uh, I say face to face. You know, person to person and person to team comms. Yeah, it's more powerful. Doing Actually, demonstrations and stuff, and and showing people, and being able to relate to people's. Uh, tasks and their challenges really helps uh, mm. because a developer's job is to, to release features right yeah up pace so we need to help people by explaining that we know that actually that code chain doesn't take 10 seconds and that you know being realistic about how we can a uh, improve their skills and capabilities so that they're, they're coding better testing better um building things into the life cycle so that we aren't moving into prod stroke near prod um, in a really insecure config uh, and with a high attack surface. Yeah, but on that, I have, so I've seen two approaches on that, on that element. I've seen the governance approach where you actually have just enough, a bunch of uh, static scanners that just scan through the code and just throw a bunch of potentially false positives and you spend hours and hours and hours on actually fine-tuning your static scanner. Um, and then if you say, I want to deploy at scale, I just put a blocker whenever a static scanner throw me a number of uh, medium and critical and high and I don't promote your code. And I've seen massive transformation fail because of that because it, it just, everything was stopped. Yeah, so how do you play that at scale? <laughs> and, and I think the scale that scale question is is still a question. Yeah, I think there's different ways and different teams and different organizations. Um, I I don't let, let me be controversial. I don't believe you can deploy security at scale. You can do an effort to actually do a fast pace, but not not at scale. Security needs time to actually look at stuff. Because it's not trivial stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I it's agree. Like it's, it's marking your homework at scale and at speed. You can do an optimization, but you still need time to look at the overall picture and you still take time to digest everything. It's not like a line of code change. A line of code change might be fine, but it might, might punch a hole or might introduce a new, a new vulnerability. And that's you only do it. And you only notice if you look at the whole, at the whole code or if you do a retro with your. Oh. It's like looking. Yeah. It's like looking at business logic as well, right? So you could have the most secure code base in the world, but there might be a business logic vulnerability, which means yeah, that all, all your products get sold for free, or uh, your margins are eroded. It's it's complex. We're talking about uh, IT architectures and well, not even that business architecture life cycles, which involve many, many complex components. Um, so can we say security at scale and security? At pace is a failing concept. A failing concept. I wouldn't necessarily use those words. Um, I, like I would to be say controversial. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say that the the idea that security is static, uh, or you know, that we can get to a level of uh, you know, it, it's a constant game of ensuring that you're providing assurance and. Uh, constantly keeping up with the times you know that that's the reality you don't get to secure you just get you get to more mature and well managed and more optimal you don't get to a you know a secure state it doesn't exist something will pwn you somehow 
Yeah, it's um, just fix fast. Fail fast and fix fast. Yeah, I mean, it's levels of failure that you need to tolerate. All of this stuff in my mind comes down to risk appetite, uh, especially in the commercial world. Uh, and that's where I tend to focus my time. You, you need to have a risk appetite. Your business needs to understand what its risks and what the impacts are. And then you need to build security uh, controls and programs aligned around your business risk appetite. Uh, how, I mean, it's, it's a thing that most businesses I go to don't have. They don't have a statement of what their risk appetite is. And you might have someone running around throwing policies down people's throats. And if we don't understand the, you know, the business appetite, it's very hard to then convince someone to do something differently. So like I said, communication is, is, is definitely the number one, uh, the one area that people I think should focus on more. Uh, Actually, on the subject of communication, Yanis asked, uh, with the current situation in the market and the demand of good security people, how can you ensure that your people can focus and stay and remain in your team? <laughs> yeah, I mean... How do you prevent everybody going contracting, saying, yeah, thank you, you're giving me a bunch of security training and security skill set and now I'm going away because it costs much more. I can make much more. I think this is just this is a challenge just when you run a team. Um generally it doesn't matter whether it's in tech or tech or if if you're in you know from any business. I guess on security I guess on security is is but it's more true so because of the demand and because of the salary rate going higher and higher. Again, I mean this goes back to the to management though. So in terms of um when you have a team of people, it's again, it's comms. It's important to work with your team. It's important to understand the uh, the capabilities your business require from your team and the investments and developments that you need to make. Um, attracting and retaining staff requires speaking to them. It requires understanding what they need. It requires supporting them. It requires you know training um, and development. Now, as to what that, that is, like I said, different people learn in different ways. Um, honestly, I've seen I've seen both aspects of it, and, and I fundamentally agree with you. It's a cultural dash, making people feel warm and fuzzy in your environment, so that they stay because they want to stay, not because they're coerced to stay. And I've seen people coerced to say, saying, "I'll pay your master in cybersecurity, but then you stay here for X number of years, unless you want to give back the money." And I've seen them, and I've seen them degrading over time because they're not engaged. They're not really interested in the business anymore. And so only retain. Yes, sorry. I go. No, no, go ahead. I was saying like, when you look at the, the surveys and the data that about why people leave jobs, um, it's not always money, right? If you've got a job that, and don't get me wrong, because we all need to eat. Yeah. But when you've got a job that's paying a reasonable and appropriate amount of uh, money. It's it's making sure you've got a job that's interesting, that's challenging, that's yeah. exciting, that you've got a working environment where you're free to uh, to have innovation, to to do supported. what. Yeah, absolutely. There's all these things. I don't think I've ever left a job because I was like, oh, I just want more money. In fact, that's usually the last thing I think about when I've looked at uh, changing, um, changing role, changing team, moving to a new, uh, a new organization. It's usually everything else that causes uh, 
people to leave. The money yeah, bit is usually a bonus. Um, but that's my experience. And I, I, when, I, when I build teams, I try and make sure that we're realistic. You know, I, I will sit there and do a training plan with a team and do a obviously a business-aligned um, roadmap. Mm-hmm. But we'll also talk about their personal aspirations and what they want to do and look at that over a long period. And if their five-year plan is to become CISO, yet they're doing uh, an analyst role, if that organization they're in can't support that, you'd still that's fine. You, you still build to support the team member's mm-hmm. uh, career plan. You just align it to your business and you recognize that they'll probably be in the role for three years and then they'll move on. You make the yeah. three years good so that they're delivering good value back. Everyone's winning. Uh, it's when people don't invest in their staff, you end up with negative business impact, negative personal impact, and they're going to leave anyway. Hmm. Yeah, so, good point. Again, all about the humans. Yeah, it's ultimately we are a society made of humans and interaction and communication is the key. On, on, on top of that, I, I tend to force, kind of quote-unquote, force my team members and I try to influence as many people as possible to give back to the community because you get you get open source stuff, so you you give back in in terms of uh, articles, in in terms of uh, talking at conference and contribution. Do you do that as well, or how do you see yeah, forcing I, people to do that? So <laughs> forcing people, I encourage people to um, to explore what they enjoy and what they do with their team members and where appropriate outside. I'm a massive, massive fan of caring and sharing. Uh, I, I put as much content out as I can. Um, yeah, you know, you have brain dumped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, love I, everything. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I blog on a regular basis. I encourage other people to start their own blogs, to put stuff in wikis, to put GitHubs together. There's, there's two reasons for this. One of which is the sharing point. And, you know, I work with lots of people, uh, and I don't mean to see work, but, you know, I've got a community of people and friends, and we help each other. Um, if people ask me questions online, I help them back uh, if, if I can, or I point them in, in a direction. I mean, I, some roles I think require it. I think the businesses should take more of an active approach, and part of the job role should be to do X and to should support that um, sharing and development aspect from a formalized point of view. Uh, and other times, I think you need to work with the person's appetite and strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone likes sharing everything. Not everyone likes just clicking the post button on the blog because it's nerve-wracking because you're exposing your inner views and thoughts to the world. Um, and we all know how the internet and Twitter can be. <laughs> so I think I think Same it's... security drama. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the drama clock. You say one thing, and, and and if you get it wrong, you know the world can start tearing you a new one. I um, know I had my fair share on that, but actually, just posting a couple of ideas is like. <laughs> I mean, people have opinions, right? Um, I think you need to, you know, we have to accept that, and not everyone will always, you know, not everyone's going to write blogs, not everyone's going to write content. I think you just need to get the right balance. Um, yeah. If it's a requirement of the job, so I do a lot of work in sales, pre-sales, and uh, business development. We need to get messages out to people. That's part of what we do. Uh, if we've got people who are not doing that and it's part of their function, that's a problem. Um, so communication, back on the communication. Yeah, yeah, back, back, to, back to the humans, right? <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's that's very important because uh, you can deal with machines, but the human part is actually the most complex. Actually, Yanis was asking something else. So that is actually an interesting, very interesting question on the pen testing capability or the automated, if you want, testing capabilities in cloud, AWS, Azure, I think, shall we mention also Google Cloud? We <laughs> <laughs> know they have massive <laughs> analytics. They have they have incredible analytics capability. They're not very strong in the compute part of the, that aspect. But yeah, I mean, so the, I mean, the question is how AWS and pen testing methodology for apps hosted in clouds. Yeah. So, and if you come but, across any solution that automate. So um, there's various different bits and pieces that I've personally done uh, on different cloud platforms like Heroku or on AWS uh, or on Azure. And again, this goes back. Have you come across Heroku? Uh, yeah, I did, uh, did something not long ago on that. Um, okay. The okay, This goes back to my point earlier about the, the blend between doing white box, uh, gray box and black box testing. There is the cloud is such a wide landscape. Just saying, like, how do you test cloud? It's quite difficult. You might be testing an API hosted on a PaaS solution or a SaaS solution. Um, you're going to have different points of exposure. So, if someone has uh, an, an infrastructure as a service platform and they only expose a VPN endpoint to the internet, you can do a pen test, and you're pen testing the VPN endpoint. What you're not doing is looking at the uh, cloud management planes. You're not looking at the operational processes. So I think it's key key to understand that cloud is such a wide domain and such a range of platforms and capabilities that um, you need to tailor your tests to suit your uh, threat. Risk appetite. Yeah, and risk appetite. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's if I can grab it back, yeah. is 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 understanding your division of responsibility, what you should you can and should do, what you should consider, and uh, the scope of the pen test. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, scopes of pen tests and how pen tests go to market um, is a, is a really interesting subject. I won't go on forever about it, but I think as an industry uh, in the security testing space. We need to um, we need to get better at selling more effective security testing capabilities. Um, in my experience, there's a lot more black box testing, and I think it would be better off when we move, hopefully, move white people into a world where we should be white, doing far more white box testing, doing I far do, more configuration audits because you're missing a huge attack surface because people yeah. are sort of picking and choosing the the view and viewpoint from a test, and then they're ticking a regulatory compliance box because they're saying, yes, we've had a pen test. But it might be that you're only testing 1% of the attack One service. Piece. And I notice by doing whiteboard testing, you actually save a lot of time and hence money, and you can refocus the scope on actually saying, let's let's spend time in actually things that are important not on the discovery phase because yeah you, you think like a hacker you think like how much does it take to actually discover all the things but then if you think about from a business perspective you're actually burning out money to not test things in a proper way yeah so and, you, and, you, sorry go ahead yeah no that's uh, in the end we have to remember that the 
if you think about this from an internet facing perspective, uh, and again, it depends on your vertical, depends on your business or your government function uh, as to what your threats are likely to be. But the internet exposed services or your corporate services, even on your internal network, are exposed to time. And time costs money. And we don't have huge, huge investment to do, you know, two months worth of hacking to try and take down the site that you might not breach. I mean, that's one of the realities, I think, that um, playing CTFs can kind of get you in sort of the uh, mindset, the wrong mindset that everything is polable. Yes, okay, there are generally ways, but when you start throwing into uh, in, into the real, real world, you've got scopes, you've got uh, exclusions, you've got yeah. constraints. Constraint, yeah. The you pen know, testing world is, is a completely different beast than capturing the play. It's yeah. like, this is your scope, work with this, work with credential, work with this. It's like, if you used to capture the flag, it's like you had to discover everything. It can, it, it can throw you off. But you're also expecting to be able to shell everything and to be able to escalate everything. Whereas the yeah, reality, you can say lateral movement, and you actually can't laterally move. Yeah, I mean, I've just I'm just in the middle of writing a blog at the minute, uh, which I'm going to publish in the near future, which is how not to red team. Um, <laughs> and what I've done is I've tried to mix the business angle and the technical aspects to show what you need to have in place before you start paying people to dedicate quite you know potentially substantial amounts of money to hacking your network. If you've got a land manager, a link local land manager responder um, enabled, uh, they're going to respond to you. You're going to get pwned. <laughs> so it's about making sure we're using the right capabilities at the right time with the right people and the right skills. Security um, testing doesn't equal pen testing. Security <laughs> testing means being able to demonstrate that your system can stand uh, just just uh, a random kicking and not having a pen test. Pen testing is the actually added intelligence. And that's what I tell people security testing is not pen testing. And that actually is linked to the shift left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and don't get me wrong, there's a time and place for all different types of activities. Um, but I do think that we as a, as a whole, like businesses and organizations would do better by trying to not stick with old paradigms for security testing, leaving it to the end, doing a pen test from a specific uh, uh, viewpoint will not really give you the assurance you need to protect your customers and your brand. Ultimately, well, actually, if it worked, uh, then we wouldn't be seeing breaches from you know every company, <laughs> big or I small. Think, I think though we we'd say we keep on hammering on actually doing security testing, but as an industry, we haven't defined what actually security testing is because I found a lot of people, okay, let's do security testing. What do we test from a security perspective? And then you kind of say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> we, haven't we haven't defined a methodology to actually define how to break on things, it's like how to do that extra mile to test from a security perspective to, to revert back, if you want, the use stories into security testing use stories and, and trying to have that hacking mentality before you actually employ a pen test that will actually give you that. I think, you know what I've done in the past and some of the stuff that NCSC doing I really like is using the uh, cloud security principles mm -hmm. from the initial outset and doing, it's essentially a marketing piece, but 
ensuring you've got internal governance and externally being able to represent to your customers, uh, your suppliers, um, how you are going about providing a security assurance and what activities and capabilities you've put into the uh, into the services you're offering. But isn't that similar to what the Cloud Security Alliance ultimately is doing with the CCM, the Cloud Control Matrix? Yeah, yeah, but I think this is the right way to go, if that makes sense. So it's it's not just the pen test at the end. It's it's making sure that we embed this stuff in into the DNA. In the capability, uh, yeah. Uh, how you do it. I mean, I don't think of any of these things. Um, I get this advice a lot. Uh, people are like, oh, how do I implement it? And I'm like, well, it depends on what you're doing. I don't think you're going to get a tick box exercise that gets you everywhere for every scenario. Uh, yeah. I think, I think when we start building these things and starting to do this from a strategic and design point of view in a better manner, uh, based around principles, that I, I think we're going to get up, end up with more secure products that are more user-friendly, uh, that have controls that work, that are not um, avoided at every opportunity. Um, I think that's but the also, way to do it. Human-centric security is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, and, and I fundamentally agree, but I, I found that we as a design design community, we are stretched because you tend to get involved in every single minutia of the design. So <laughs> doing design smart, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen on doing the design smart. So actually... The, I have a rule of 70, 20, 10, 70% of the time spend on project, 20% reverse engineer whatever you have applied on the project and abstract it and make it into a pattern. So you actually have more time of that 70% to actually work on pattern and 10% do research. And all my team does that. It's like 70% of the time, just focus on the project and then to make your project happy, you earn your money and then other stuff, you actually free your time and you you end up you end up in a situation where you had 20% of the time on projects and, and the rest is actually research and patterns. Yeah, I mean, time allocation is a funny thing, right? Um, I think this is, again, I think if you look at more modern or new ways of um, of how we approach uh, you know, getting work done, as it were, uh, I think people are starting to realize that they need to, uh, again, make it more human-centric, like, and allocate reasonable uh, expectations of time for different tasks. It, it's like I said, some organizations, you know, I've, I've personally had been given targets for me or my team um, that are like, you need to be 95% utilized, billable. billable. And I'm like, yeah. it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work. And when you I've start seen, looking, I've seen 110% billable. I mean, I've, I've had people, hell, I've done it as well. We've, I've had projects and programs where we've had people build 100 plus percent. Um, but from a sales lifecycle human safety point of view, you need to build business models that give people and cust- you know, give everyone a, a reasonable level of service. And well, again, this goes... mistake. Yeah, you, well, you, you get people burnt out. You get people making mistakes. You get, you know, you get you all negative outcomes. You don't think strategically. So I've seen a lot of people doing a lot of legwork when they can just take a step back and they're solving the same problem four times in four different ways. If they step back and look at the problem and say, I might solve four different problems with one solution, with one pattern. Like, for example, secret management. I've seen projects implementing secret management in 400 different ways. <laughs> it's like, why don't you come up with three options 
and then applied and then people can just pick and choose the option and then you they can come to you if they have a doubt or if they have like how do i implement this or how can i implement another pattern uh, so, this goes back to you know people not having standards and architecture practices and architecture is a different is a difficult beast to come up with because sometimes it's difficult to justify the role of an architect especially in the DevSecOps world and they say, oh, let's let's throw everything at the engineer and what does the architect add as a value? And I will say it's the holistic view and it's the consistency and it's the strategic view that, that can work with engineers. It says you have four different problems. You can solve it with one solution. If you focus on just one specific problem, you miss that solution, that holistic solution. Yeah, sure. I, I completely agree. It's, it's also about prioritization and where, what battles do you fight? Yeah. No. Actually, before before we close, we, before we close off, because we're running out of time, I have just one specific question on the pen testing that I was really curious to ask you. If you're doing a pen test specific on a SaaS solution, if you stumble across other people' credentials, or you you kind of breach the scope because you you break the system well, in a if way you, that if you accidentally break uh, breach scope, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, and, I, and I stepped in, in a couple of pen tests that way, and I had to alert the SaaS provider saying, by the way, we just found out all your customer information. What do you do? Oh, I personally have not broken a SaaS platform um, with a, like a major, sorry, you know, a, a massive multi-tenant SaaS platform's capability. Um, no, even smaller one. But what would you do? What would you do in that case? Well, I mean, I would I would open a dialogue with the uh, the provider. Um, you know, yeah. In the end, it's logged what you've done, right? So you, you've got a vulnerability. If you're working on behalf of a tenant and you've managed to affect the service provider's platform, then you should report that to the service provider because you won't be able to fix the. It's highly likely you can't fix the vulnerability through the tenant side. Uh, interfaces anyway yeah so if you, you you need to report that to the your client um you know if, but it's if it, from a legal dash yeah yeah that, that's that's <laughs> that's why i'm being a bit ambiguous um yeah i know it's a bit like what what happens when you see things when you know you're not meant to see them yeah anyone who's uh, spent enough time in proxy logs uh or uh trawling discs uh, and network systems, you know, you, you find stuff. It's sometimes a paperwork nightmare. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> but that's the commercial hey, aspect of it. You need to work within your own risk appetite. And in accordance with any laws. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult. Because it's recorded, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. The um, no, but it's great, isn't it? Some stuff is great. Let's not lie about it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the OSINT work we do uh, is great. Yeah. So it can actually affect negatively a lot of people. So I don't know. That. On the OSINT side, I'm, I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical and I always refrain a little bit because it can destroy people's life. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of where I go with. <laughs> When we look at like people's well-being and stuff, like if we find something, you know, if you find a vulnerability and you take precautions within your own risk appetite, because all life is, you know, every action you do from a personal point of view, 
uh, carried risk and reward. And um, I mean, the thing I would say is sometimes people seem to get very stressed out about some things they can't control. Um, I would focus on what you can control and, you know, work in a way that, that is is suitable and keeps you, keeps, you, keeps you out of uh, handcuffs, right? <laughs> if I can, if I can give a, 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 a positive spin on the OSIN side, I would say it depends on the risk appetite and on the cultural aspect of the organization to actually not blame a person, but blame a process for it. It's like if you find a vulnerability by leveraging a human being, you actually need to think twice about the process that are surrounding that person, not blame the person and have a scapegoat. Also because 90% of the time, the process will remain there and the person who's going to be replaced will make the same mistake because yeah, it's yeah, sure. the hard person. And yeah, I agree. Look, I mean, again, like this human centric element is really key uh, in my messaging for, for everything I do, really. Um, we have to work together with people to improve society, to improve businesses, to improve, you know, uh, improve security. And that's a human element. We do it through technology, but in the end, this is this is human stuff. So, you know, if you find stuff, be responsible with it. Um, so if I can ask you to leave us with a couple of positive messages, one on the overall security aspect of it, are we improving or are we decreasing the security aspect of it? Do, do you know what? I, I think uh, even though it's from, uh, we've had sort of like global incidents, as it were. So security is improving. It's never going to improve at the rate that I think that some people will want it to. Um there's never just, you know, the business outcome of just security, generally speaking, right? Um, I think we're moving on the right track. I mean, you look at the stuff Microsoft are doing, you look at the capabilities, you know, you can deploy highly secure systems. I, I put up a CTF online and I spent five minutes uh, locking it down. I didn't even play test and no one managed to shell the box. Actually, right? on, on, that, on that subject, I deployed a couple of Raspberry Pi in one of the DEF CON and nobody actually bothered. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I was I mean, surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Not everything gets pwned. I was in a system the other day and I had remote access and the passwords were weak. It didn't have MFA, it didn't have WAF. Uh, and I looked and I was like, ah, even if it has been pwned, I checked out the functionality and the actual site was broken. So even though you could enumerate all the machines on the on the network, um, you couldn't actually do anything with it. <laughs> and well, that's like, the best security, right? You yeah, turn yeah, off yeah. The machine, you put <laughs> turn it off the machine. <laughs> um, granted, through that you could. I mean, this is particular scenario. Uh, the vector was cyber stolen creds, brute forced. Even if you got that, you could go into OA. It's the usual stuff. Um, yeah. And that's what we need to work on, right? People focus on blinky boxes and edge cases and crazy ass APT scenarios. Um, when you like simple stuff, turn off responder from working, put Windows firewall on, make sure your service accounts have good, uh, you know, long, strong uh, passwords, use password managers, um, you know, get the basics right, patch stuff. Patching is difficult. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's no. not not easy to turn around and just force something out. But but if you commit, you actually you actually can make a difference. Regular uh, patching is way simpler than doing you know once a year massive. How about uh, regular rebuild? 
it's way yeah. easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, the trouble is when you work at large scale, high maturity organizations, and then you go into the masses of the business or, you know, of, of the networks world, there is a big divide. Not everyone has the capability to. I bet to disagree. I bet to disagree. I've seen, I was talking with, with the guys from Netflix. They did that at scale, but just because they were in engineering led, they actually put that as a core element. Now, they don't have a lot of legacy because it just came out, but they, they rooted that thinking in the core of the engineering practice. I think we can still do it. It's, it's, it's I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not disagreeing with that, but when you go into existing uh, brownfield environments where their focus is not software, and there's a lot of businesses, at least in the UK, uh, where they are not en engineering houses, they are uh, you know, supply chain, logistics, manufacturing. There's quite a lot of businesses that have, that have a lot of legacy. They've got a lot of spaghetti. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a smaller scale. And it's, it's, it's it, it becomes much harder at, at that sort of level. But again, it, look, it's basics, right? Uh, if you can stop someone from getting malware on your device, or even if you sit there and go, right, let's assume that your AV will fail, because it, it probably will. Um, what happens if someone has an agent on an endpoint? You know, treat the, use an assume breach model, do stuff from a, a white box point of view do the basics you're going to make uh you're going to make someone's life a hell of a lot harder just by doing some relatively simple things all right daniel i unfortunately have to close but i can talk about this forever yeah. actually janice was proposing was was actually throwing an interesting proposal for the folks in um for the folks here from London, we were proposing to have uh, a beer or a night out maybe we can catch all together um Actually, on, on the subject of getting all together, on day 18, we have the Cloud Security Alliance annual meeting where we do some talks around the cloud and some talks around this. Uh, Danny, if you want to speak or come along, you're more than welcome. Yeah, 18th sure. of June at 1 p.m., uh, Canary Wharf, HSBC building, 8 Canary. That's, uh, I'm just checking, that's Tuesday, right? I... Yeah, it's somewhere along along there. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, just if you, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've just checked my diary. That's free, so um, I'd love to. I'll ping you across some uh, some detail. Cool. Hey, All um, right. Um, sorry, a quick one. How long? How long is um, the the Cloud Alliance um, event? How long is it? One p.m. Uh, when? It's one p.m. to six p.m. with drinks, free drinks. Perfect. Okay. okay. So Any other? Yeah, yes, we can. Off work, right? Yeah, I just, I just have it. Yeah, I mean, we, we're gonna have some discussion afterwards. That's why, that's why I put drinks for people that can't make to the conference. But please attend the conference because it's really cool. All right. Any other questions? Yeah, sorry. I just is it one p.m. Yeah, sharp? Because most likely some of us may be coming from from office from work, taking a half day and that. Yeah, we have we have some some uh, admin stuff and some welcoming stuff, so it probably will be one thirty when we kick off. But the, the detail agenda is on the side, so I'll share the site. Um, the the tickets are on Eventbrite, 
and I'll share the detail on, on the community. Uh, Daniel, I'll also invite you to the community so you can... Actually, on, on the subject of the community, why don't we merge the two communities so that people can, can ask and share? We have a Slack community. So we, we could cross-invite people on the two communities or merge the two communities together. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> Sorry, was that to me? Sorry, I didn't realize that was to me. Yeah, I mean... And, we could merge the communities. Yeah, and anything that we do to... Um, I guess of all these things, it's all about how we can share and uh, help each other develop and grow. And, yeah. You know, and share knowledge because most people are facing the same challenges. So, like you said before, there's no point in having a, a 400 patterns uh, <laughs> no. to solve the same problem. It's much better if we get together and, and, and share intelligence and share uh, our thinkings. So. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Daniel. Thank really you very appreciate much for having this. me. Really Cheers, fun. Cheers. I, I, shared, I, shared the, I shared the recording on, on the Slack and I shared the recording with you, Daniel. Maybe we can add some beep here and there. <laughs> yeah, cool. No problem. I'll have to mute it. I can't stand hearing my own voice, right? So sorry to everyone for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Massively. Bye. Thank you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Bye.